And it really is a delight to walk in here and to greet so many of you that I know and to see so many of you who I don't know and to know that we are uh, united together in this cause for Christ, in this mission for his kingdom. Uh, it's very exciting. If you'd open up your Bibles to Psalm 71. Psalm 71. We're going to begin by reading through the entire psalm, and then we're going to focus specifically on verses 15 to 20. The psalmist says this, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, Deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, oh my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O oh Lord, from my youth, upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. I have been as a portent to many, but you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. For my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him for there's no one to deliver him. Oh God, be not far from me. Oh my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed with scorn and disgrace. May they be covered who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually and praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation from all the day. For their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. O oh God, from my youth you have taught me. And I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O oh God, do not forsake me. Until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Your righteousness, O oh God, reaches the high heavens. You have done great things, O oh God, who is like you? You have made me see many troubles and calamities. You who made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O oh my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O oh Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. My soul also which you have redeemed and my tongue will talk of your righteous help 
all the day long, for they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought my hurt. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O God, my rock and my salvation. Well, I love music. I'm I'm really... uh, almost addicted to music. Music is a passion of mine. And people have always experimented with recorded music. But in the early 2000s, there was a fad which was called the mashup. Now, the mashup is when you take two recordings. It's blending songs together in a way that's not just a medley, but it almost becomes a new song in and of itself. It's made up of older parts, but it's created with a feel of something new, something that didn't exist. It just is, is there on its own. So I brought my favorite example. They're going to play just a snippet of it from my favorite example. So can we play that back there, Sarah? Okay, so here you have The Police, Every Breath You Take, 1983. Classic 80s song. Their most famous song, okay? But what you have is this mashup with 1963. Uh-huh, Benny King singing Stand By Me over top of it. See how seamlessly that happens? I actually, I brought the bridge. You have to hear the bridge. So play, turn it up a little bit here. The police, so you have the police bridge. It comes out of the bridge. Oh, right into those strings from from Stand By Me. It's amazing. It's so seamless. It's, it's almost, what, what has happened is there, they've taken the strengths from both of those songs and they've put them together. It has this familiarity to it because we have spent time with those songs. Some of us, many of us. And yet it has something fresh. It's all its own. Something fresh to offer to a new generation. Well, that brings us to our psalm this morning, Psalm 71. Psalm 71 is a mashup. It's exactly what it is. It's kind of like someone went through the Psalms of David and started slicing the tapes and taping them back together or dropped them into Pro Tools and started digitally altering them. So first what you have is this Psalm 71, it's linked to the Psalm before it, Psalm 70. It has this repeated language. It's almost like Psalm 71 is the extended dance version of the Psalm 70. And the two Psalms are linked with Psalm 70 verse 5 where it says, I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O Lord. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. Now that verse is taken from Psalm 40. And then there are verses from Psalm 31, 38, 35, the opening actually is from uh, Psalm 31. Verses 5 and 6 are from Psalm 22:10, and verses 11 and 12 reference Psalm 22:11. And if you remember, Psalm 22 is where Jesus is quote, quotes on the cross, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" Verse 3 of Psalm 71 hearkens to Psalm 18 with the stacked up descriptions of God as our rock and refuge and fortress and deliverer. So Psalm 71 is more than just kind of this modern worship trend where we have great old hymns and then someone writes a catchy chorus that wasn't needed for 200 years. This psalm is borrowing from others 
but it has its own purpose. It comes with its own unique perspective. It comes with the perspective of age and experience. So first, what you have is the psalmist here, he's older. He's old. He references his age in verses 5 and 6 and 9 and 17 and 18, even to old age and gray hairs. So, because I'm bald, people don't always know how old I am, but I'm about to turn 50 this year. Some of my closest friends and peers are becoming grandparents. I've actually known Everett Petit since 1996 when I joined the sound team at Covenant Fellowship. I had just graduated from college. He was already married and probably had three kids at that time. I never realized how young Everett was (laughs) until I got older. (laughs) See, it changes our perspective as we age. And the psalmist here is admitting to his age. And he's admitting to some of the challenges that come with age. In verse 9, he says, Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. Aging is hard. It can mean diminishing strength, physical challenges, slower healing, more pain. As we get older, our families change, our relationships change, our work changes, our abilities change. We face our own mortality and experience the mortality of our friends. We may lose our independence or experience confusion. As our outer bodies are wasting away, it can lead to discouragement or embarrassment or even shame. The inability to do what we used to do, feeling obsolete or outdated. And the psalmist is wrestling with those feelings. He's engaging the Lord in this psalm, let me not be put to shame. But with that age also comes experience. And the psalmist references his experience in the form of lamenting over the trials and the sufferings he's endured and that continue on in his life. In verses 1 and 2, he is crying out to the Lord to save him in his old age. In verse 4, he has wicked and unjust and cruel enemies. Verse 7 to 11, he says his suffering leads others to wrongly see him as a a portent. That means like a bad omen. They think he's being judged and forsaken by God. Now, he knows that that's false, but he sees no relief to his difficulties or from the agitations of his enemies. This is not some fictional character that we're talking about. We know David. We have read about his life. We have read and sung his psalms throughout our Christian lives. We have all experienced these same things, the trials of weakness, weariness, a sense of shame in our own lives. And our problem is that in those times, we can tend to forget God. We can tend to forget God's goodness, and we can lose hope. When we feel overrun or we feel misunderstood or abandoned, we are prone to feel sorry for ourselves. We're prone to complain, to be embittered, or to try and take things into our own hands. We can be tempted to blame God or even try to avoid God. And if we're trying to avoid God, then we are going to avoid God's people. And we're going to avoid gathering with God's people. That's a danger of the Christian life. But in Psalm 71, the psalmist is giving us an example of how to avoid that pitfall. 
He has spent his lifetime writing and worshiping to these psalms. And so now he's combing through them. He's borrowing a line here and a line there. He's adding his own poetry to it from years of endurance and reflection and hardships. And he crafts this mashup, this new song for himself and for the people of God, where he writes honestly of his trials, but he comes with humility and resolve. And this is what he resolves to do. He resolves to remember who God is and to remind others of who God is by recounting the mighty deeds of, of the Lord. He's going to stir up hope by remembering who God is and reminding others of who God is as he recounts the mighty deeds of the Lord. That's the key to hope in the Christian life. We need to completely rely on God and proclaim his mighty acts with faith. And this isn't just something that happens in the life of the individual. It needs to be the practice and experience of us as a whole congregation when we gather together on Sundays. Psalm 71 is a call for us when we gather on Sundays to stir up each other's hope by remembering who God is, by reminding one another of who God is, and by recounting the mighty deeds of the Lord. So we're going to, as I said, focus primarily on verses 15 to 20. Under these three headings, the past deeds of the Lord, the future generation, and present hope. So we'll start with the past deeds of the Lord. It all begins with the Lord. And the Lord is central in this psalm. And he's directly referenced in 21 out of 24 verses. This psalm is about God. And it's that sort of God saturation that is what our lives and our church should look like. We must live God-centered, God-aware, God-oriented, God-saturated lives. He is the refuge in verse 1, to whom we continually come in verse 3. When we're fearful or harried or anxious, it's because we are not continually coming to take refuge in the Lord. There's no amount of personal success that is going to make us entirely secure in and of ourselves. We need a true refuge. David Pallison, who is a pastor and uh, teacher, says that the main theme of Psalms is God is our refuge that we can turn to. And most of the book of Psalms is the antidote to what people are looking for. David in Psalm 71 is bringing us that antidote. This is what we need at our most fundamental level. Our hope must begin by turning Godward. And we do that by recounting the past deeds of the Lord. In verses 15 to 17, he says, My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. Now, why is it so important that we recount the mighty deeds of God? It's because if we don't, we're going to forget. We will forget. Just look at the example of Israel, right? Israel saw the Lord deliver them from slavery in Egypt. They saw the most dramatic of God's mighty deeds. Signs and wonders, plagues, the miraculous parting of the Red Sea, the pillar of fire and smoke, the provision of manna and quail and water in the middle of a desert. 
the manifestation of the Lord on Mount Sinai, thunder and lightning, earthquake and glory, the mighty deeds of the Lord, salvation on full display. But in Psalm 106, in talking about the Exodus, it says, our fathers did not consider your wondrous works. But verse 13, they soon forgot his works. Now, are you aware of that tendency in your own life this morning? Because people, we are like Israel. We soon forget. It's worth asking, what are the things that make us forget? Maybe it's, maybe it's prosperity. Maybe in your life, in your job, in your family, things are really going well. I ask people in my neighborhood sometimes how I can pray for them. Some people just respond saying, you know what, we're good. Everything's doing well right now, which makes me feel horrible because it feels like, man, how are they doing so well? <laughs> but many people are doing well. That can lead us to self-reliance. Maybe it's just busyness, just distraction. We get distracted from the things of God because we're self-focused. Or maybe it's hardships, relational turmoil, physical weakness, illness, that question of why me, Lord? Our hearts can subtly give in to self-pity because when we're focused on ourselves, we lose sight of the Lord. But Psalm 106 goes on in verse 21 and says, it says they forgot their Savior. And so often we forget our Savior and we're left despairing. But in verses 44 to 47, Psalm 106 says, Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered. People, we may forget God, but God does not forget us. He remembers his covenant. He remembers his steadfast love. Our God remembered and sent Jesus Christ to be our Savior. When we had forgotten God our Savior, he sent Christ to be our Savior. We looked to him in our distress. He remembered, and while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The ultimate deed of salvation is Christ coming to redeem us. This is God's deed of salvation. And this is what we must go and proclaim. Tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere, all the day long. See, David had his own stories of salvation in his life, right? We're in a family service. The kids are here this morning, right? Okay, kids, listen up. Questions about David, okay? What was David's job when he was little? Anybody remember? Just shout it out. Shepherd. He was a shepherd. Now, when he was, when he was a shepherd, do you remember what types of animals tried to attack the sheep? Lions. And bears. Yes. All right. The right side is showing up strong. <laughs> I don't know where the kids are on the left, but yes. Lions and bears. Also, he fought a giant whose name was Goliath. Okay, so David was rescued from bears and lions as a young shepherd. He defeated Goliath in his youth, right? 
He was preserved from Saul when he pursued him through the wilderness. David escaped from foreign kings like Abimelech. He was victorious over treason from his own son Absalom. And God is the one who delivered him through all of that. Church, you have stories of salvation too. And God is the one who delivered you. So where can you recount God's mighty acts in your life? Every day, begin at the cross. Begin at the cross. Remember the blood that he shed to cover your many sins. The forgiveness you've received, the mercy that we have in him, the grace and the love that he pours on us, the power of the Holy Spirit that now resides in us to fight sin and live for God's glory, the adoption we receive as sons and daughters. Church, we must recount the gift of eternal life forever with Christ. And then after that, after the glories of the gospel, we can begin counting the blessings of this life, beginning with the fact that we woke up this morning with beating hearts and breath in our lungs. Let our hearts brim with God's goodness and then share it with others around you. Because this is supposed to be done in the congregation. Psalm 71, 16 says... With the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come. I will come. That means come into worship. Come into the gathered congregation. Our Sunday morning gatherings are not simply social clubs so people have something to feel like they belong to. We have youth soccer and baseball on Sunday mornings for that. The gathering, the church, is the place where the blood-bought saints come together to speak out the mighty deeds of God and renew our hope in Christ. Verse 16 says, I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. See, we must declare among the gathered people that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When we gather together on Sunday mornings to worship, one of the main purposes is to stir each other's hope by remembering who God is, reminding each other of what God has done and recounting his mighty deeds. Brothers and sisters, everything we do in our gatherings, in this service on a Sunday morning is supposed to do that. In fact, you may have never thought about it, but the whole Sunday service is actually a retelling or a representation of the gospel. That's something that I, I learned from a pastor and professor named Brian Chapel in his book, Christ-Centered Worship. Now, now track this with me here, okay? Think about how the gospel came into your life, okay? It begins with God revealing himself to you as true and holy, the living God. We're stunned that he exists. We're in awe of him. And we quickly become aware that we're not worthy to receive him. We have disobeyed his law. In fact, we see God's holiness. We become aware that we're sinners in need of being saved and cleansed. But we, we confess our sins. He is faithful to forgive our sins and cleanse us through Christ from all unrighteousness. We're assured of our salvation, that it's not of our own doing, that it's all of Jesus Christ. We respond with gratitude, with thanksgiving. We pray. We have communion with God. We come to his word for instruction. We're fed and then we're sent out into the world 
to our neighbors with his blessing to advance his kingdom. That's how the gospel worked in each of our hearts. So now, that same progression of the gospel in our lives is what shapes what we do in our Sunday services. So let me show you how that works. We started this morning with a call to worship, right? That is God revealing himself and calling us to praise him. We take time in our service to admit we are sinners in need of a savior. We might do that through a prayer. We might do that in our singing. We confess our sinfulness before him and we receive the assurance that we're forgiven through Christ and not through our own works. We give thanks for that. Nathan came up here and prayed for us and we prayed with him. We commune with God. We hear his word preached. We take communion together and then we are sent out under a benediction to further his kingdom in the world. Do you see what I'm saying? What we do on Sunday morning is the same thing that the gospel did in our lives. When we gather, our service is shaped by the gospel. Every Sunday, a retelling of the gospel. This keeps our minds stayed on him. It keeps our hearts soft to his mercy. It keeps us rooted and grounded in the saving grace of the gospel and leads us to the sustaining grace of God so that when a health crisis hits, we find sustaining joy in knowing that through Christ, we will never be separated from God's love and his constant presence. So that when we lose a loved one, we are pointed to the strength of knowing that eternity has been purchased through the blood of Christ. Our loved one is in the presence of God and we will be comforted both now in this life and in the life to come. Do you see how God has designed this? Brothers and sisters, we need to thank God for his faithfulness because this, he's not only built this Christ-centered pattern into your church service here at Redeemer, or our church service back at Covenant Fellowship, but into our family of churches as Sovereign Grace churches from our very early years. Psalm 71, 17 says, Oh God, from my youth you have taught me. That's why it's good to have the children in the service. We're being taught from our youth and the youth, the teens. Sorry, teens, I didn't mean to call you it's children. He says, I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. See, I, I joined... Covenant Fellowship, and I joined Sovereign Grace Churches in 1994. I was a very young Christian, and I've lived most of my Christian life in this church culture of Sovereign Grace. And that culture recounts and celebrates the gospel every Sunday as we gather. And as a family of churches, we have been taught to hold to Christ-centered preaching. We have worked to write songs that are gospel-focused, that fill us with the hope of Christ's redemption, and that give expressions of gratitude and love and praise. That's the legacy that we're building, not only as individual churches, but as a family of churches in sovereign grace. So, and may we be committed to carry that into the future. That's why Covenant Fellowship planted Redeemer, to carry on these values and proclaim the gospel to the next generation. And you, church, are carrying that torch. You do it every Sunday when this service intentionally declares the gospel. You do it when you come and declare the mighty power of God to one another each week. So let's work hard to make sure that nothing that we do becomes rote or common to us. 
Do you understand what I mean? We should never just do things out of habit. We should always strive to experience and engage God in every aspect of the Sunday service. For example, in in our family, uh, before dinner, we pray, we thank God for the food, and then we sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. We sing that before we eat. And recently, my son Liam, he just asked, hey, Dad, do you think think we should slow down what we're singing? I said, why? Why do you say that? He said, I'm just wondering if singing the doxology before dinner has kind of lost its meaning because we do it every night. That's a great question for us to be asking ourselves. Do we sing it out of habit or do we sing it and focus on the Lord? Do we just sing through it fast because we're hungry or we're frustrated waiting for others, mostly dad, to come to the table? Or do we sing it meditating on each word? Do we sing it absentmindedly while we're dishing out food and putting butter on our bread? Or do we sing it to one another? looking at each other and calling each other to praise God. God from whom all blessings flow. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Every Sunday, do we participate in the service in a way that stirs up fresh affections, engages with God, declares God's greatness to others, and builds hope? To do this, we've got to understand why we do what we do. The more we understand why we do what we do on a Sunday, the more meaningful, the more effective our gatherings are going to be in our lives. Parents, you should be explaining to your kids why we do what we do in the Sunday service. Why do we sing the songs that we sing? Why this particular song? Why take communion? Why do we read the Bible? Kids, pay attention. Ask your parents questions about why we do what we we do. I remember when I was a kid at church, there was, there was a friend of mine, and um, they were supposed to go on a trip. He didn't want to go. He was afraid to fly. And his parents asked him, why are you afraid to fly? He said, because Jesus died in a plane crash. <laughs> I don't know if this is true or not. It's just what he told me when I was a kid. So, so his mom was like, what do you mean he died? He said, we say it every week in church. So she's like, okay, well, next time you hear it in the service, you know, point it out to me. So... Going through the service, all of a sudden he's like, there it is, mom. And you know where it was? It was in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. And the only pilots he knew were guys who flew planes. Okay? So kids, ask questions, and parents, be ready to answer. The Sunday service is a lot more helpful if you understand why we're doing what we're doing. Teens, ask your parents what it means to them when they come forward and take communion. What does it mean to them? What's their favorite scripture and why? How does coming to church strengthen their faith? When we understand why we do what we do, our worship can be intelligent. We are supposed to worship with words and with our minds. We we, we sing wonderful songs and music is an an astounding gift of God. I love music, as I said earlier, and music should be used fully in the worship of God to express our affections and trust and bring Him glory. But it's very easy to create music that just stirs people in an emotional way and gives us the sense that something transcendent has happened 
without ever having worshipped God with our minds or truly stirring affections. That happens in live music contexts all the time. It's more like having a romantic crush than understanding the depth of love in a covenant marriage. But in the gathering of the church, something real is happening. The living God, our Heavenly Father, is engaging us with His steadfast love, giving us hope. Church, we must worship intelligently and truly experience spiritual strengthening. Emotion can dissolve like a mist, but Christ-rooted hope will endure every storm. So let's continue to gather to this end, not only so that we would go out strengthened each week, but also that the next generation would rise up and do the same. So two more points real quick. First, second point, future generations. Verse 18 says, Even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to those to come. Here again, we've got, we're going gray, the sober reality that time is limited, but we see that Sunday mornings are not just for coming together to have little private individual experiences with God. Our engagement with God is together. It's intended to have an effect on one another. And as we tell of God's righteous acts, our prayer should be that we pass the testimony of the gospel on to others, on to the next generation. Our worship is designed in our singing, in our praying, in our listening to God to encourage others. Our Sunday service is not only an opportunity for us to be refreshed in the Lord and find sustaining grace, it's meant to be a benefit to those that we're worshiping with. As we sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs, the truth we declare is meant to move each other's hearts and strengthen each other's faith. When we hear brothers and sisters singing the promises of God, reading scripture or praying, it fills us with faith and hope. It's like the scene in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Everybody familiar with Pilgrim's Progress? You should be familiar with Pilgrim's Progress. Kids, Pilgrim's Progress. Tell your parents, I want you to read me Pilgrim's Progress. Parents, if you're looking for a good version, Dangerous Journey is the name of one, or Little Pilgrim's Progress. They're both really great. Anyway, it's the story of Christian. He's on the road of salvation, headed to the celestial city of heaven. He's traveling at this point in one scene through the valley of the shadow of death. It's very dark. The path is narrow. On one side, there's a ditch that falls away to nothing. On the other side, there is a bog that will suck you down. Both promise death if he falls. Every step, he wonders if his feet are going to give way before him. There are demons terrorizing him, whispering lies in his ears. It's very much like the hardships described in Psalm 71. But then Christian hears a voice. He hears someone a little further down the path. He can't see him. Turns out to be a man named Faithful. And that man is speaking the 23rd Psalm. And he says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. And what was the effect of hearing another believer declaring God's salvation? Christian was glad. Because first, he knew he was not alone in the valley. Second, he was able to reason that if God was with that other person, then God was also with him, even if he didn't feel God's presence. And third, he figured that if he could catch up, they could walk together in company. That's Sunday morning, folks. That's Psalm 71. Walking into church desperate and saying, God, you've got to help me. Quick, I need to be rescued. And then looking around and hearing your brothers and sisters and knowing 
You're not alone. God will never leave you. And we can walk together and encourage one another day by day. That should be the effect of our worship together. We want to be people like faithful who will proclaim the might of the Lord so others can hear. We need to remember that this is why we gather. We need to have a vision for what we're a part of in strengthening the faith of others in church. Now, sometimes you may get discouraged and wonder if it even matters if you show up on a Sunday or at a small group. You may feel weak in body or tired, but you're still able to tell of the righteous acts of God and proclaim his might to another generation. Even in the midst of difficulty, God's grace turns our attention from our own trials and the desire for deliverance and gives us an other's focus. The opportunity to leave a legacy of hope and faithfulness We're not going to live forever. But while we are here, let's give our lives to pass the hope of the gospel to the next generation. That's what our worship is intended to do, to connect the future generation to the past of gospel hope. We find hope in the gospel. And when we do that, we stand on the shoulders of the generations who've gone before us. And just as as others have passed the message of Christ's gospel to us, every week we're passing it to the next generation. Through every song we sing together, through every scripture we read together, to every prayer we pray together, to every sermon we hear together, to every benediction that's proclaimed over us. It is through this faithful practice that we offer our hope to one another. And therefore, we have a present hope. And close with that, our present hope, sustaining hope that we gain for today. I recently heard Pastor Matthew Roberts comment that the whole of Christian worship is about hope and building hope. And that's expressed in verses 19 to 20. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you. You who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. Here we see that the righteousness of God is immeasurable, reaching to the high heavens. And that means our hope is immeasurable. An infinite God can offer hope that's never quenched. He is the one who has done great things. And when we, so we say to the psalmist, who is like you? We have a God who's without comparison, and so our hope is matchless. We can have confidence that even in trials and difficulties, he will revive us again. Present hope is the fruit of worshiping with the saints. Pastor Von Roberts describes the importance of worshiping together this way. He says, it's hard being a Christian while you wait for the day. That's why we need to meet together to spur one another on, and to encourage one another. There's a great danger that I will give up in the Christian life before I reach the finishing line. That's why I need you. You are God's provision for me to keep going. I need you, and you need me. So let us not neglect, church, meeting together as is the habit of some. May each week we gather to stir up hope by remembering who God is, reminding others of who God is, and recounting the mighty deeds of the Lord. Amen.